So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. And this week we will be in verse 17 of Luke chapter 6. Once you have found that in your Bible, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. This is the inerrant, inspired, and infallible Word of Almighty God that you will now have the privilege of hearing. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. As we continue our exposition of the Gospel of Luke, Uh, We are now in chapter 6, and we are approaching uh, what many would be considered uh, the greatest sermon that has ever been preached in the history of humankind. This sermon was preached by our Lord in the time of his earthly ministry. And as we approach our study of this sermon, we pause this week on verses 17, 18, and 19, which really serve as an introduction to the sermon that approaches and indeed concludes in chapter 6. In chapter 6 of Luke's Gospel, verses 20, all the way through the end of, the, of chapter 6, uh, you see the sermon uh, famously recorded in Matthew's Gospel as well, Matthew 5 through 7, uh, known by some as the Sermon on the Mount. And here in Luke's Gospel, we have uh, an introduction to that sermon. And the summary statement that we get is recorded in these verses. And that summary statement includes for us the people that are present at the sermon, the people that are, uh, and, and why those people seek out Jesus. To, to hear from him. We're told that they are there to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And so as we look at this summary statement of chapter 6, part of what we're intending to do tonight is to ask the question, uh, what is it that Jesus provides these people when they come to seek after him? What is it that he delivers to them as they are in pursuit of him? Really in uh, this study, uh, the title of it is The Man of the Hour. You'll notice the popularity of Jesus and the many people that gather from all around Jerusalem, Judea, and even from the Gentile regions around the area that come to approach him, to hear from him, and to be healed by him. It is true that in Luke's gospel, so far we have seen that this is not the first time that Jesus does such miraculous works. Luke actually has a habit of summarizing the healings and the exorcisms of Jesus all throughout his gospel. And this is really the apex or the climax of those kinds of summaries. Last week, we saw that Jesus selected his 12 apostles. And in selecting the 12 apostles, right before he does that, he spends all night in prayer. And at that time, we discussed that the reason he spends all night in prayer is to really hear from the Father, to commune with the Father, before he makes this high selection at the climax, or really the the peak of the conflict of his ministry thus far. He's been having a lot of run-ins with the Pharisees. And right after that night of prayer and the selecting of the apostles, the very next thing he does is come down from the mountain and deliver what we have then recorded as his greatest sermon. So we've moved through the text this week, verse 17, 18, and 19. All we're going to do is take a look at who is there and why were they there. That's all we're going to do. A very simple way to look at it. Who is there and why are they there? And so if we start with that first group of people that we're told in Luke's gospel is here, look with me in verse 17 of this text. 
as in he came down with them and stood on a level place. That them in the text refers to those whom he has just chosen. That motley crew of disciples that we have met previously, we discussed them at length last week. You'll notice it was a very ragtag group of individuals, some of who would be willing to kill the other if the right opportunity presented itself. And nevertheless, they are united in Christ, chosen by him to be apostles and to carry out the continuation of his ministry when he ascends on high. Now, they don't know that they've been chosen for that role fully yet. They just know that they've been selected for something. They've been called by him to be apostles. And this is the group of people he comes down with. The first group of people that is identified with us in Luke's gospel is the apostles. They're here, and if you look over the rest of the survey of chapter 6, you're going to notice they hear this sermon, and they observe his healings, and they are present for this ministry of Jesus. And it's probably fair for us to ask, why does Jesus need to teach his apostles these truths? Why is he presenting them here And what is the significance of that? Well, the apostles, you'll remember, are responsible for being the foundation of the teaching of the church. So if it is true that Christ, when he ascends, is going to give his Holy Spirit to the apostles, and he's going to allow them to propagate the church, what's the one thing they need to do correct? They need to heal, they need to do the miraculous to prove that they are apostles, and they need to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine. And so the apostles here are present for training. They're present for the observance of the teaching, for themselves to internalize it into their hearts, and ultimately to be able to repeat these kinds of teachings to those whom they're going to disciple. The apostles are the foundation of the church. These teachings are the teachings that the church is founded on. And so the apostles' presence here is to tell us, or to tell them rather, what they are one day to begin to teach and to preach. And they've indeed entered into another kind of discipleship relationship with Christ, because now they're being trained, not merely as disciples, not merely as followers, but even in a higher role as teachers and preachers of the word of God. And that charge doesn't terminate even with them. Because Paul, when he writes, Paul the apostle, when he writes later in his life, he tells young Timothy, the one thing that young Timothy needs to do is to keep a close watch on his doctrine and on his ministry, because in doing so, he will save not only himself, but also his hearers. That's the one thing he tells him to do. He doesn't say run a church. He doesn't say get a startup. He doesn't say make sure you make the people tithe every single week. What he says is keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. What he actually says is the teaching, the doctrine. Keep a close watch because this is the foundation of what the church will be built on. And if Paul found it important that in his dying letters to Timothy, he's going to write these words, the apostles, they start off with this kind of important teaching as soon as they're selected. Jesus will preach this sermon not just to everybody, but also to the apostles who will be present for observing it, for learning from it, and for being trained in it. That's the first group of people we see here in the text, the them that he comes down with. The next thing you'll see in the text is a great crowd of his disciples. Continuing that sentence in verse 17, he comes down with them, he stands on a level place, and he stands there with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So he comes down from the mountain, his apostles in tow, and he stands on this level place. And then the next people we see in the crowd is his disciples. This is not the disciples that we commonly refer to as the disciples. Remember, when we talk about the disciples, we often are referring to the 12, the apostles. 
This is his disciples, that is the much larger group of people that follows him. So what does it take to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, this moment, it takes subscribing to his teaching. To be a disciple of a rabbi is to confess or to at least profess that you adhere to the teachings of that rabbi. To be a disciple, for example, of Paul is to subscribe to the teachings of Paul. To be a disciple of Caiaphas, the high priest, is to subscribe to the teachings that he puts forth. Because you're his disciple, you are learning from him. To be a disciple of Christ is to at least profess that you believe and you will adhere to the teachings of Christ. So why do the disciples need to be here for this sermon? Well, the disciples need to obey the teachings of Christ. They need to know what those teachings are in order to obey them. But more than that, the disciples are not all converted. We'll notice this even about the apostles. Remember, Judas is listed among that group. They're here to be sifted by those teachings. Another such occasion in John chapter 6, we are recorded that Jesus teaches. And as he's teaching and his disciples are recognizing what he's saying, what they decide is we don't actually want to be your disciples anymore. We don't like what you're saying, so we're out. And so the, the veracity of their faith, the, the trueness of their profession is tested by the sitting under the teaching of the Christ. When Jesus teaches, he teaches sometimes things that are nice and sometimes things that are hard. And depending on who you are and what your sin struggles are, you might run into different points where he sounds nice and where he sounds harsh. The question of discipleship is not, am I in full agreement with Jesus on the moment of my profession of discipleship? The question is, do I continually submit even to the hard things of his teaching, even when I don't know if I agree with them? The difference between a disciple and one who is an apostate is a disciple continually takes the posture of, I don't know necessarily what that means, but I'm with you, Jesus. I submit to your will and to your teaching, even if I don't understand exactly how that all puts itself together. Remember when Jesus, in that occurrence in John chapter 6, is teaching about his body and his blood, which is broken for them. And they're wrestling and they're like, we're, we're out of here. We are gone. And he turns to his other disciples, the ones who are still behind, and he turns and he says to them, will you too leave and abandon me? And what Peter says is not, nope, what you just said makes sense and I'm with you. What he says instead is, Lord, who else has the words of eternal life? He's not saying he knows what he said. All he's saying is, I don't know how to make ups and downs of that, but I'm with you because I'm your disciple. I'm going to submit to your teaching, even if I'm not totally sure how that works itself out. And a modern day disciple of Jesus has the same kind of posture as they survey God's word. When you read the scriptures, when you plumb the depths of it, I promise you, you are going to find things in the text that you're not so sure about. Things that are an affront to your flesh, things that are an affront to modern sensibilities, Things that are an affront to the culture and its values. And the question of discipleship is, do I submit to the teaching of God's word? Or do I tell the teaching of God's word that it needs to submit to my culture, my sensibilities, my beliefs? And there's many people who would profess to be disciples of Christ, who are unconverted, and who when they encounter those kinds of teachings, in essence, abandon their discipleship and instead call the, God, the word of God into submission into their own sensibilities in their lives. And I pray that you would not be like those people. I pray that instead you would be like Peter and like Thomas, when they don't know what's going on, will say, nevertheless, we're going with you. We're with you to the end. I don't know what you said. I don't know why it makes sense, but
but I'm with you, Jesus, and I'll stay until your spirit reveals that truth to me. And that's what they do. They endure. And that's what makes a disciple who's a disciple till the end and a disciple who is a shot in the dark, a flare that slowly fizzles out over time. The disciples are here to hear the teaching of Jesus, to observe the miraculous, and to call into question their own lives and to be sifted by the word of God. Notice the other group that we see here after the disciples. We're told that there's a great multitude of people. Now the number gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Not only is there a crowd of disciples, but also a much larger multitude of people who are from all Judea and from Jerusalem. Now who are the people who live in Judea and Jerusalem? It's the Jewish people. They live under Roman occupation, but they live in these lands. And so what Luke is telling us when he records this is that there's another group of people that's here with Jesus, here to listen to his teaching, and it's the Jewish people who aren't disciples of Jesus. They're not really following him as a rabbi, but they're here to see what he says. Because remember, Jesus is a very popular teacher in the synagogues. Not everyone's a disciple of Jesus. Some of them are still standing back, curious about what he's saying, still adhering to their religious customs and beliefs. And now here, there's a great multitude of them from Jerusalem and from Judea. Jerusalem being the epicenter of Jewish thought, Jewish rabbinical scholarship. And so there are people from this town with Jesus, here to listen to him and here to see what he has to say, if he's up to what they've heard about him. And we're not told whether these are the rabbis and the scribes or whether these are Jewish lay people who are here to hear him out and see what he has to say. But what we do know is that these people are likely devoted Jews or devout Jews who are here to listen to Jesus. And then we see then a third group that emerges from the crowd. In this, uh, in this instance, the Judeans and the people from Jerusalem. And those are the people who are devoted followers of religion, but who do not yet know or are yet disciples of the Christ. So we see the crowd of disciples, which are people who are called out from other religious practices or possibly from their paganism. And here we have a group that is still in their religious beliefs, still in their religious customs, but is nevertheless open to understanding or possibly hearing from Christ Jesus. Some from this group might come with scrutiny. We've seen that before, the scribes and the Pharisees, who are there not to hear Jesus out, but to see if he might accuse himself in what he says. But here we have people who are like what Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 5, where he says, there are some people who have the old wine and the old wineskins, and what they need is the new wine and new wineskins. But that doesn't mean you don't preach the good news of the new wine and the new wineskins to them, because possibly the Spirit will do a work in their heart and actually let them see what is true and what is lovely and what is beautiful about the new wine. So these are the people who have the old wine, who are going to be challenged and confronted by the teachings of the rest of Luke chapter 6 to let go of their old customs, to let go of their old traditions, and to embrace the finished work of Jesus in that old covenant. These are religious people, people who want God, but who are still thinking that they can use their own righteousness to get to God. And so Jesus is going to preach the same sermon that he preaches to the apostles, the same sermon that he preaches to the disciples. He's going to preach it to the religious people as well, knowing that they need to hear it, just like the disciples need to follow it, just like the apostles need to learn it so they can teach it and keep their life in accord with it. So you have the Jewish people here who are mentioned. And then you'll see the fourth group that is named, and this group is not mentioned in Matthew's account of these events. When Matthew accounts these events, he stops at Judea and Jerusalem. And it won't surprise us why Luke includes these people. He says there are people from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Remember Luke writes his gospel, I'll remind you again in chapter 1, verse 4, 
He says, I'm writing to you, Theophilus, so that you may have certainty about the things that you have seen and been taught. So if he wants Theophilus to have certainty, remember Theophilus is a Gentile. And Theophilus doesn't know Jewish customs. But what Theophilus needs to be sure of is that Jesus came not just for the Jewish people, but also for the Gentiles. And here Luke tells us, hey, it didn't just start after the resurrection. During his earthly ministry even, people from the Gentile group were seeing and understanding and curious about what Jesus was on about when he was preaching and teaching and healing. The life of Jesus was primarily to the lost sheep of the household of Israel, but the crumbs of that ministry go to the Gentiles. And here manifested are Tyre and Sidon. And if you don't know what those are, in Scripture, Tyre and Sidon are the Gentilest of the Gentiles. They are the people who are apex-level Gentiles in the reference of the Old Testament because they are seafaring people. They trade. They're wealthy off of worldly wealth. Sometimes they do commerce with the Israelites, but they're not known like the Babylonians for oppressing Israel. What they're known for instead is alluring Israel into a life of worldliness, into a life of pursuing the flesh, pursuing riches, pursuing wealth. And so people from Tyre and Sidon come downstream of those events, but nevertheless still a Gentile culture and a Gentile town, influenced by all the ways of the world and fully embracing them. So here this fourth group is a group of pagans, people who don't actually believe in anything religious. They're not so sure about God. Maybe they believe in their own local deities, but they don't, certainly don't believe in one God. And if they do believe in one God, he's certainly not all-powerful. And if he's all-powerful, certainly he doesn't call our morality into question. And so these people, who are Gentiles, pagans, who don't know the laws of the Old Testament, are nevertheless going to be taught the same sermon that the disciples are taught, that the Jewish people are taught, and that the apostles are going to have to preach later. Notice the consistency of this group. There's all kinds of diversity and one true message that everyone needs to hear. That true message is about the ethic of the coming kingdom of God, which is embodied here in these verses. And that coming kingdom carries with it an access to the kingdom through Jesus Christ, but it also carries with it a kind of morality that is not seen anywhere else in the world. You won't find it in the Jewish practice of their law because they don't love with their heart. They merely obey and discipline their bodies, but they don't love from the heart. You don't see this in the pagan disciplines because they have no thoughts of the afterlife. They consider this world to be lived for and that alone and have no thoughts of the life to come. The disciples still need to be called into question of this kingdom ethic to examine themselves. And the apostles even too need to be sifted and tested by this teaching. And all of these people, all of this group, is taught the exact same set of verses. Now, some of this message has to do with some of them. Some of it has to do with others of them. But all of them are present for the same demonstration of Jesus' teaching. Because Jesus knows, just like the apostles will later discover, and just like great church fathers will teach and preach, that despite your sin, despite where you come from, despite where you're at in life, the one thing you need more than anything else to get right is the gospel. That's it. You don't need doctrine as important as doctrine is. Doctrine is great as a support to the truth of the gospel. Doctrine helps us get to the gospel, but doctrine is not a means around the teaching of the gospel. The deeper you go into doctrine, the more profound the gospel should and indeed does become. Doctrine is not an excuse for the gospel. The gospel is the end all be all of the Christian faith. How sinners are made right with a holy God who they stand condemned before 
because of their sin. And you'll notice many, four groups of people, all who are either at one point sinners or are growing out of their sinfulness or are still deeply embedded in their sinfulness, all of them hearing the same truth of the kingdom of God, which carries with it a flipped reality of the world. These people all hear the truth of this message. Now, another thing, the pagans, the people from Tyre and Sidon, are uniquely noted by Luke. But Luke doesn't just tell us about them here. He's been anticipating the group of the Gentiles for his whole account of Jesus's earthly ministry. Remember in Luke chapter 2, if you'll turn with me there in Luke chapter 2 verse 30, you'll see this. He predicts it right in front of us. In Luke chapter 2 verse 30, he uses a prophet by the name of Simeon. And Simeon holds up the baby Jesus, embracing him in the temple, and he says these words, starting in verse 30 of chapter 2. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. Israel sees the glory of God demonstrated in Jesus during these events. They see his healing, they see his teaching, they see the miraculous, they see the glory of God on display. And what do the Gentiles see? They see new revelation, light being shined in the darkness. They are recipients of the glory of God by revelation. And this was predicted for us in Luke's gospel by prophecy through Simeon. This actually brings to completion something that's prophesied in Psalm 87. Psalm 87, we see that specifically Tyre is named as a group of people that are going to be part of the new Jerusalem, the new Zion, the new creation, that are going to be named by God as members of that group. It's in Psalm 87 where that's prophesied. And here, there's a minor fulfillment of that kind of reality, that people come from all around to see Jesus. And that's not just Jewish people that come to see Jesus. It's Gentiles as well. But notice something else about this text. It's easy for us if we just pause on these verses verse 17, to say, wow, it is amazing how many people are about Jesus. It's amazing how many people come from all around, from Tyre, from Sidon. They're making trips from Jerusalem, from Judea, because they want Jesus so badly. And it's easy to see that. And indeed, there is some truth to that, because they travel to see this preacher. They travel to see this rabbi who's going to do the miraculous. But if we just had verse 17, that would be the observation. But we don't just have verse 17. We have chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 of Luke's gospel, all building the reality that it's not so much that people seek after Jesus, it's that Jesus seeks after people. God comes from his heavenly dwelling place, taking on the form of a human servant. People from Tyre and Sidon travel from their cities to Jesus. He comes from heaven to earth, seeking after people. They come to take from Jesus, to see what he's teaching, to see what he's doing. And he comes, not because there's anything in them that's significant, but for his own glory, he comes to heal, to make right, and to restore a lost creation to himself. The story of Luke's gospel in these verses is not people seeking Jesus. It's the heart of Jesus on display seeking after people. And the coincidence of them now approaching him is actually a response to the fact that he's come from heaven first to seek the lost people. And he's come and put himself on display to be observed by the nations. And now they're responding in a right way to observe the glory of Jesus incarnate in human form. And that's what is happening in these verses. They're going to be privileged to hear the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. And indeed, no sermon will ever be like it since. And no sermon ever has come before it that was like it. And these people, privileged to hear this sermon, still will one day 
turn and reject Jesus. One day, this same group of people from Judea and Jerusalem will stand before the Roman government and say, crucify that man because we want Barabbas instead. And he is guilty of blasphemy. And you have to ask the question, if he preached the greatest sermon ever, what was the difference between those who follow after Jesus and believe the sermon and those who don't? The difference is not in the quality of the teaching. The difference is not in the words and the syntax and the logic that is used in the argument. The difference is in the movement of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of individual people who hear that sermon. As the Holy Spirit moves and convicts and instructs, it calls sinners to repentance and it creates a new life within the heart of dead people. It is not about logic, it's not about reason, it's about the power of God on display. And that becomes evident because this sermon is a good sermon. This is good teaching that's present right here. And even Jesus doesn't get 100% response from his best sermon ever preached. And there's a certain truth that that tells us, which is there's no amount of logic and reasoning and argumentation that can bring a sinner from death to life. We can take them to the truth, but it's the Holy Spirit who does that work to rejuvenate a sinner, to call it, take a dead person, make them alive, to put a new life within them. Because a dead person cannot respond even to good truth. And we see all of these people here listening to the sermon, listening to the truth of God's word on display, and we are just marveling at the glory of God in these verses. That's just verse 17. We still have 18 and 19 to go. Verse 18, you're going to see not only who is there, but you're going to see why they come to hear from Jesus. Notice the first thing, it says, who came, so these people who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Notice they come to hear him and to be healed. And that healing part is explained later, as it says, and those who are troubled with unclean spirits, they're cured. And those who are in this crowd are seeking to touch him. And the reason they're seeking to touch him is because power flows from his body to provide healing. So they come for one reason, really two. They come to hear him, but really to experience him. They're coming to hear from him and to be healed by him. That's all an experience of what Jesus brings to the table. He brings teaching and healing. This is part of his earthly ministry, not new to this section of text, but worth dwelling on. Because you'll notice these people seek him for the wrong reasons. You'll notice that in verse 19. And all the crowd sought to touch him, not because he's the son of God. They don't seek to touch him because he can provide penance for their sins and he can provide justification for their sinful state. They come to seek him because of the power that comes out of him. So even these people with the present Jesus in front of them seek him for all the wrong reasons, but no matter. Because Jesus will have his way with these people, whether they came to him for the right reasons or not. And you'll notice that's true even in your own story of conversion. How many of you can honestly say when you approach Jesus, when you were encountering him at the moment of your salvation, that you had pure motives the whole way through? How many of you went to church so that you could be justified before God and instead God breaks you down, meets you where you're at, and shows you a repentant and risen Savior? How many of you encountered that experience of seeking after God? How many of you wanted to have your own righteousness and instead were provided with his and he broke you and then built you back up? How many of you have a conversion of experience much more like seeking after Jesus coincidentally because other people are around and you like these people so you're going to come here to this thing and now Jesus meets you even in your sinful pursuit of the church and even in your sinful pursuit of him and even in your coincidental experience of him, he can meet you and change you. And it's so is true even with these people. 
who come to seek him for his power, not knowing the real kind of power that he provides, the real kind of blessing, the real kind of sanctification, the real kind of atonement that he is going to put forth in their lives. Now, the healing is significant. The teaching is significant. But they don't have a clue what's really happening here. And they don't need to. The disciples don't have a clue what's happening when they're first called either. Jesus walks alongside of them to train them and to instruct them and to correct them even when they're wrong. And that's good news for us because that, tru- that truthfully tells us that it's not up to us. When we seek after God, even if we do so for the wrong reasons, he is gracious to meet us and to love us and to correct us and ultimately to disciple us into his kingdom. So what then do we do with the teaching? What do they come to hear? Well, in verse 18, you'll notice they say it says they come to hear. And the whole of what they hear is recorded for us in summary form in the rest of chapter 6. And we're going to spend several months breaking down the rest of chapter 6. So we're not going to get into what they hear tonight. All you need to know is this. Read chapter 6 this week. Survey the truth of what it contains. And ask yourself the question, why does Jesus choose these words to these people in this order for this kind of instruction? Just ask yourself, what is the teaching all about? And as we continue to dive into it together... We're going to learn and unpack the riches that are found in these verses. I told you, this is the greatest sermon ever taught. And Jesus is a much better preacher than any other preacher who's come before him and after him. And so he gets this done in one go. It'll take me several months to get through this. So the next thing you'll see is not only do they come to hear his teaching, a big part of his ministry, but they come to be healed of their diseases. They come to be healed. Notice how simple of a kind of human inclination that is. You have a broken body, you need to be made right. Even people who are unconverted can understand that kind of a drive towards restoration. And that's because healing and brokenness is part of the sinful condition. You might not think about this because we live in a Western medical kind of age, but healing is explicitly connected to the problem of sin. It is connected to the fact that we are a broken people with broken bodies, not because bodies are broken when they're created, but because sin entered into the world and death through sin, and that death now dwells in our physical bodies. And we are all walking in this broken kind of creation, and that even our bodies testify to the fact that there is something greater, something more to be had, something that our bodies attest to, which is its own brokenness and its own feebleness, is even designed to point us to the glory of the immortal Christ. That's what healing and disease are all about. It paints us a picture of the resurrection and of the restoration of the new kind of bodies. This is Paul's argument in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. If you'll turn there with me, I want to look at those verses. 1 Corinthians 15. And we're just going to look at a handful of these verses, but indeed all of chapter 15 applies to this reality. Paul's argument goes something like this. You say that there is no resurrection of the dead. Let me postulate to you that that is true. Then Christians and everyone who follows after Jesus is the most unfortunate creature that has ever walked the face of the earth. Because if the resurrection isn't true, there is nothing to hope in. And then he says these words, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Past tense. He's gone. He's out of the grave. The first of those who've fallen asleep. Notice how that loops in immediately the fallen brothers and sisters who are 
dead. They've just fallen asleep. And the reason he can say that is because they're going to wake up one day. They're going to be restored in real bodies. He says, verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Remember, death and brokenness and healing are all linked to the reality of sin. And so when Jesus comes to restore sinners back to God, he also comes to restore a fallen creation back to its creator. Christ is the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ is the first fruit, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. Verse 25, what are those authorities and powers? For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's the last enemy to fall. Death enters through sin into the world, and as Christ is making the world right back to himself, he's killing death. He's putting death to death. And here, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is giving us a little glimpse of what the glory of the resurrection and the restored creation looks like. This is not a perfect fix, because everyone who he's going to heal physically with these bodies are still going to pass away. They're still going to die. But... What it's painting is a kind of appetizer of the new creation. That Jesus can have power flowing out of his body and just heal people at his own will as a picture of what's going to happen in the new creation, the new reality, when physically dead people are restored to a new created body that is better than this body ever was and is better than what we could ever imagine and is really what we were created to be like. That fallen body is going to be birthed into a new kind of creation Not by superstition, but by the glorious work of Jesus in creation. He is the creator with a perfect creation. And he, in his healing, testifies to the fact that he can and he does and he will restore fallen creation. Notice also, it's a picture of not only what the heavenly reality looks like, but it's a picture of the fact that he commands the kind of power that can take things that don't make sense and make them right again in a way that we could never explain. These are not healings that can be explained through medicine. These are not healings that can be explained through our own logic and reasoning. These are healings that are supernatural and they are unexplainable. They exist in the world that we have a hard time understanding. In the West, we live in a world that is postmodern, post-supernatural, and very much logical. And in that world, we question many parts of scripture. You can talk about things like the flood, and you can talk about things like the creation account. And all of those are potentially harmless conversations. But if you have a trouble with the flood, because you can't really explain how that naturally happened, let me tell you what, you're gonna have a much harder time with the kinds of things that Jesus does just on the surface in his ministry. It says he takes dead people and makes them alive. And science has never been able to explain that. And science, I promise you, will never be able to explain that. And so it requires a kind of faith in the supernatural. It requires a kind of belief that only the Holy Spirit can provide in things that are unseen, in things that are attested to in history, but in things that we can't dig up and evidentially examine. And that is an affront to the modern mind. Paul actually predicts this. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks, what do Greeks demand? Logic, reasoning understanding, sophistication. But we preach Christ, crucified, 
And we preach Christ also resurrected. And the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ doesn't make sense to a naturalist. Christ didn't die and then raise back to life in our hearts. Christ died in his body and raised back to life in his body. He physically got up out of the grave. And if he didn't do that, we are of all people most to be pitied. That means that we can long and hope for a future resurrection for our bodies as well. He came as the first fruits, and we come afterwards to also be restored. We're not Gnostics, we're Christians, which means we don't believe in only a spiritual renewal through Christ. We also believe in a renewal of mind and body, all of it being restored to Christ. Christ pictures this not only as teaching ministry, but also in his healing ministry. He heals them of all their diseases. And even coincidentally, you'll see he also heals those who are troubled with unclean spirits. That's not a surprise to us. Jesus has been casting out demons since the earliest recordings of his ministry. And he does so now, no problem. That's a pretty straightforward understanding of what it's painting. The powers of darkness have no power over Jesus. He's powerful over them. They have no authority here. That's what he's showing by casting out demons. And he did it privately. He did it in smaller settings. Now he's doing it with everyone present. What's funny about that is the Jewish people still end up rejecting him despite all of the miraculous things that he does in their presence, which testifies to a fundamental denial of truth, a fundamental denial of the kind of things that would have attested to his deity. They rejected on the surface. These are not people who are open to hearing about Jesus. They're people who are looking for reasons to deny Jesus. Remember when he heals the man with the withered hand? And the Pharisees who said earlier, show us a sign that we might believe that you are the Christ. What he does instead is say, my teaching is sufficient. And he cross-references the Old Testament. And then on this other occasion, they look and now they're so sure that he's going to heal, they're not even questioning, can he? They're asking, will he do it on the Sabbath? Because that way we can get in. And he does so and they're enraged and furious. Not because they're looking for a glorious Christ incarnate, a Messiah who's ready for them. What they're looking for is a reason to reject the person in front of them and cling to their old religious beliefs. Jesus taught about this in Luke 5. He said, when you drink the old wine, what you'll say, the old is good enough. The old is good. I'm good with that. I don't need new wine. I don't need what you have to offer Jesus. I'm good with the old stuff. And that's an affront to the religious people. And here he's going to attest to his power by his healing of diseases, by the powerful preaching of his word, and by the casting out of the demonic. And people seek to touch him and to be healed by him. And the question is, is this something that is only true in the New Testament? Does this healing ever get seen anywhere else in Scripture? Well, no prophet ever does anything quite like this. Some come close with their healings. No one does exorcisms. But there is one thing in the Old Testament that would probably very closely resemble the kind of healing that takes place as described in verse 19. Verse 19 says they seek him to touch him not because they want to understand him, but because he can heal them. And he does heal them. Now, the question is, what paints a picture of that in the Old Testament? Well, if you'll turn with me to Numbers 21, we will examine that occurrence. Numbers 21, and we will be in verses 8 and 9 of that text. This is a picture of Christ. Numbers 21, I'm going to start reading in verse 4. It says, From Mount Hor they set up by the way to the Red Sea. This is Israel. And they go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? 
for there is no food and no water. We loathe this worthless food. By the way, they're talking about the manna that God gives them. We loathe this worthless food. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. He sends fiery serpents among them. That's the wrath of God manifest in the people of Israel. And the serpents bite the people so that many of Israel die. Verse 7. And the people, the ones who don't die, come to Moses and they say, We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he might take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. He intercedes on their behalf. And the Lord says to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, referring to the pole, will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, how does that have anything to do with what we just talked about in Luke? Here's the correlation. Jesus heals people in their bodies, not because they understand who he is or all that he came to do, but because they are going to him for whatever it is that they needed. They don't need the full doctrine, they don't need the full explanation, but they're going to him and they receive healing. The people here in Numbers don't need to understand fully how the healing of the poison of the snakes works when they look at the pole. What they are told to do is trust that the pole is the means by which God will heal them. And this is a beautiful picture in the Old Testament because it goes even deeper than that. Because Jesus, in John's Gospel, says that the Son of Man must be lifted up, just like the serpent is lifted up. The serpent is a picture of the curse of God. The curse of God, the wrath of God, is sent into the camp of Israel. And the very means of deliverance is also a picture of that curse, a serpent on a pole. And the means by which Jesus saves in the New Testament from people, from the wrath of God, is by himself taking on and becoming a picture of the wrath of God. He bears, he bears in his body the wrath of God, elevated on a cross, so that all of us who are deserving of that kind of punishment would be saved from that kind of punishment. The wrath of God is manifest in Christ, and all who look on him and believe are saved. All of who look on the cross and trust, not necessarily knowing exactly how that works. You don't need to know exactly how it works. The thief on the cross didn't know exactly how it worked. The people here in Numbers don't know exactly how the serpent saves them from their healing. But nevertheless, the healing takes place. There's a kind of idolatry, I fear, of doctrine that can lead us into this kind of apprehension about exactly where we are with Christ. The question is not, can you write a systematic theology about what Jesus came to do? That's not the question. The question is, can you trust in Jesus as a final answer for why you deserve righteousness with God? Because it's not up to you. It's not even up to the kind of doctrine you can explain. It's ultimately based on his work and his finished work on that cross. Looking to him as the answer is the only answer you need. Now, doctrine is beautiful so long as it points to and undergirds that truth, that substitutionary death of Jesus in our place. But doctrine is not good if it replaces that truth and sees understanding of doctrine as more beautiful and more lovely than counting on the cross. The fiery serpent is a picture of Jesus in the new covenant, and Jesus manifests the reality of that by healing people who don't understand him, people who don't know all that he's here to do. These people are from Tyre and Sidon. They couldn't possibly know that a Messiah is to come. He's going to teach them. He's going to disciple them. But they couldn't possibly have known what's happening. But nevertheless, power flows from him in his graciousness and his mercy to the people. And he's going to preach to them, and we're going to get to that. 
But I don't think we should skip over the fact that he does heal their bodies. He heals them physically, and he serves their needs and their felt needs and meets them where they're at. And it's a beautiful picture for us as a church because we're told as we emulate Christ, be imitators of Christ, we're not just to emulate his teaching. We're not just to emulate the doctrine that he put forth, as beautiful as that is and as essential as that is. You can't do away with that. But you also can't do away with the kind of mercy that Jesus shows to people who are living in a broken world that's dying and that is fading away. The church needs to attest to the reality that there is a kingdom with a king and that the kingdom is more beautiful than what the world has to offer. How do we do that? We show mercy to people even if they don't know who God is. Even if they don't know what the gospel is. We show mercy to people who are in a hurting and dying world. Not because they deserve it. Not because they've cleared a certain amount of tests that we want to run them through. But because when you were at your lowest, when you were a rebel against God, Jesus came and sought you and showed you mercy. And you attest to that truth by seeking out others and showing them mercy. The gospel is included. Teaching is included in that. But teaching isn't the all-encompassing piece of that. It's also a matter of mercy. Now, this mercy that Jesus shows is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus' substitutionary death for sinners on their behalf so that they might be made right with God. But the healing is a direct kind of result of the gospel. If the gospel is true, if Jesus really did die for sinners then the kind of mercy that's on display is a testament to the coming reality, the coming kingdom, the coming truth of God's world. And so if the gospel is true, then the downstream effect of that is the mercy from the church flows out to all of the creation as a testimony to the beauty of the kingdom. The king is lovely, the king is generous, and he gives great gifts to his people. And so his people ought not to be stingy with the resources that they've been given by the king. What they ought to do is to be like the man who we're going to study later in Luke's gospel, who's an unrighteous man with unrighteous wealth. And he leverages all of his unrighteous wealth so that he might be known and be accepted by the people who he leverages that for. And what's that a picture of? It's a picture of people who know that what's coming, that this life is coming to an end, that we have this kind of buildup of unrighteous wealth. And the question is, do we hang on to this unrighteous wealth till the bitter end? Or do we give that unrighteous wealth away knowing that it's coming to an end, it's going to pass away, so that we can be accepted when it goes away because we've leveraged it for the glory of the coming reality? That's the question. That doesn't mean be a bad steward. What it means is leverage your wealth, leverage your finances, leverage your resources, leverage your relationships for the coming reality, which is more real than the present reality, which is more sure than the present reality. And the reason I say it's more sure is because Hebrews tells us the reason things are shaken is so that the things that are unshakable can stay and remain. And this earth is being shaken and it continues to be shaken. And one day through the wrath of God and the purification of his wrath, it will be completely undone and made new. And it's going to be shaken and it's going to be done away with. And the coming reality is the unshakable reality, the true reality. And it's coming inevitably and it one day will be here. And the question on that day is not going to be what did you have in this life? It's going to be how did you leverage what you had in this life for that life? because that is a testimony to the kind of reality that you have. That's not to say that that earns you salvation or that earns you repentance or that earns you respect with God. What it is, though, is a testimony that you believe the kind of justification that you have before God. If you believe that Jesus died and gave you a debt or paid for the debt that you could never have paid back, then your resources and your use of this life will testify to the fact that this is not your own, 
you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Glorify God in your finances. Glorify God in your relationships. All of these things exist so that we can put the glory of God on display. And so that we can taste his glory. So we can see it for ourselves. The coming reality is beautiful. And as we get into the truth of that coming world, you're going to see that Jesus teaches profound and often difficult to understand things about that reality. But here is the big picture idea that is on display here. Jesus seeks people. He seeks a group of people that some know him, some don't. Some are seeking him. Some are apostate and don't know it. He comes to that people and he preaches them a message about a coming kingdom, about a coming reality. And how does that land with us on the ground? Well, we go to all people, regardless of exactly where they're at with God, and we do the same thing. We preach the coming reality, the coming kingdom. We preach how, that, how entrance in that kingdom happens through Jesus, through his substitutionary death. We also preach about the truths and the glory of that coming kingdom. The fact that there is a king who's going to fill and satisfy those who are hungry right now. That there's a king who's going to clothe all people in his righteousness and his splendor. We're going to preach about that reality. And we're going to shake the reality that also exists. Because the reality now lies to people and says, if you're rich in this life, you'll be rich in the life to come. Because there is no life to come, so this is it. And we say no to that, because if you are poor in this life, if you're humble in this life, you will be glorified in the life to come. And we preach that truth, that reality, to all people who will listen. To the people who are in church, who are leaders in the church, if you like, the apostles. We preach that reality to people who claim to follow Jesus, the disciples. We preach that reality to people who are in all manner of religiousness, seeking after God but not knowing who he is, the Jewish people. We also preach that reality to all of the people who are considered pagans and lost. Because the pagans and the lost and the Jews and the disciples and the apostles are all saved and all converted and all kept by the same message, by the same truths, by the same teaching. And that is the teaching that we must embed into our hearts with our lives live out and also with our faith in our hearts, believe. And what a glorious reality that testifies to. What a glorious king who sits on the throne of that kind of a kingdom. And what a glorious God that we worship, who would make it possible for sinful people who are in all manner broken, who are in no means worthy, that he would come into a human form to seek those people. What a glorious God. There is no God like him, amen? Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for who you are. Lord, we're so grateful that on every page of Scripture, your beauty is attested to. Or we are in awe of who you are. Lord, I pray that you would give our hearts and our minds and our thoughts increased devotion to you. Lord, we know that if you don't move in our hearts to conform us into the image of your Son, there's no way that we can conform ourselves. But Lord, we submit ourselves to you asking for you to work, to shape us, to mold us, to worship you better, to glorify your name, to put your glory on display. Lord, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Amen.